Uh, it's good to see you here today. I'm always honored to stand up here in front of you, and today is no different. I'm excited about what we have been talking about. This series, like a lot of the ones we do, it seems like as I get into it, I think this could go on forever because there's, you know, we're talking about toxic relationships. I hope none of you have one of those in your life, but I think all of us have either had one or will have one or have had one that we can relate to or know somebody who's in a relationship that needs help. And some of you probably are thinking, well, so far all you've talked about is us. And that's true. So let's just review for a little bit. It really all comes down to this. We've got to love God, and if we love him, God loves us. We love like him, and because we love like him, we love others. That's the progression. That's all of Christianity wrapped up there. All of it is there. And it's not about you trying harder. Instead, it's about trying more of Jesus. So if you look at this, and as we've talked about this this week, and you see that maybe there's areas where your behavior doesn't quite line up, we're not saying for you to try harder. What we're saying is if there's more of Jesus in you, it will come more naturally. But for any of this to work, like all things in life, you have to make a choice. These are not things that just happen. It's not as if you're just going with the flow and you, you do all these things. Because the fact is our human nature fights against what, what Christ would have in our lives. It just fights that way. You surrender yourself. You choose to surrender yourself to him you surrender yourself to his ways, and then you surrender yourself and you choose to love others. That's how it works. It's a heart change, and it starts with you. We serve a God that, that loves you enough not to force you. He doesn't want robots. He wants you to choose. He gives you the choice. And then once you choose, he makes a big change. He changes your heart, and then ultimately your inner thoughts, and then the actions, and then exactly what you do. It's about loving like Jesus. That's it. That's the whole beginning to it. Now, I thought about this because I've had some people complain. Like I said, they said, we thought you were going to tell us how to fix people. And I said, well, we could do a series, like how to fix people in 30 minutes. Wouldn't that be great? Can you imagine if that was even possible? You'd have to probably trick people to get there because you know, in, how many realize that people who need fixed don't usually want to be fixed or don't know they need fixed? And they'd be super insulted if you thought they need a fix. Or how about this? Remember that old book in the 70s, I'm okay, you're... <laughs> Actually, the book was You're Okay. But um, I was thinking a series might be, yeah, you're not okay, or you're rude, or you're selfish, or you're whatever. Here's the thing. It all starts with us. You maybe have never realized this, but it, it starts with us. It starts with you. It starts with me. Is that confusing? You know what I mean by when I say you, I mean me too, right? You know how that's confusing, right? If you're, if you're talking to somebody or maybe you're texting with them and they'll say, are you here? And you'll say, what? No, I'm here. But your here is not there here, right? And then when you get there, what are you going to say? I'm here. <laughs> so when I say it starts with you, what I mean is me. So if you all could say this, it starts with me. I thought for sure someone said you. But <clears throat> it's confusing. I understand. So the problem is me. Well, not necessarily. Obviously, we work and deal with people who've got issues. We know that. The problem is you can't change them. They have to want to change. God has to do the work in their heart. And maybe you've never noticed this before, but they have to care. They have to care about this. And I heard this a few years ago, and it just, it just echoes in my mind a lot because bottom line is this. The person who cares the least controls the relationship. You ever thought about that? 
The thing is, you need to pray for them. Uh, we've, been, we've been using a book that's called Love Like That by Les Perot. It's, it's, it's a great book. It's an easy, short read if you're interested. Someone can borrow it if you want it after this. But what he talks about in the book is the ideal that, that we're supposed to love like Jesus. And if we're going to love like Jesus, it has to be that agape love we talked about a couple weeks ago. The love that is selfless. The love that doesn't require other people to perform for us to give it to them. We just love them like Jesus, like that. But the problem is we're conditional by nature. Our nature is such that we want people to conform. We want them to do something for our love. We want them to earn our respect, to win our acceptance. And if they've offended us, we want them to suffer first before we forgive. Right? Just a little. We want them to be contrite. Our nature, our nature wars against those things, the mercy and grace that we read about in Scripture. And as we look at this today, I want you to just compare yourself to this. And I know the temptation is to compare someone else, and sometimes that's easier for us to do than to look inside. But let's take a look at this for a minute. Mercy is getting spared from bad things that we deserve. That's mercy. Grace is getting good things you don't deserve. You see, there's a difference there. Mercy is just not getting what you deserved, but grace goes farther. Grace gives you something which you never deserved. You can look at it like this. Mercy gave the prodigal son a second chance, but then grace gave him a feast. If you've never read any Max Lucado, he's, he's a phenomenal writer, and he points that out. I heard it said this way too. Mercy is when you see someone drowning, you, you throw them a lifeline. Grace, you jump in and help them. That's different, right? What's the difference? Grace is active. Grace does something. Grace gives something. Mercy just doesn't give you what you deserve. Mercy is withholding that, that thing that we do. That's why we, with God we need both grace and mercy. You might look at it like this. Grace, by definition, is unfair. It's unfair, What's fair is getting what you deserve, but thankfully none of us get that from God. The truth is, he gives us far more than what we deserve, and he extends to us a grace that is unconditional. It's a gift. It's something we can never earn. Are you, I'm going to ask you questions, rhetorical, don't answer. Are you aware of your own resistance, though, to giving grace? We like grace. We like mercy. We just don't like to give it. Well, here's, you know, to be more fair, I think what happens is we, we think we give it when we don't. Now, Jesus continually, all through his ministry and on his life on earth, he demonstrated grace for us multiple, multiple times. And as I was looking at the New Testament and thinking about examples of this, there were many I could have chose, but this one just is striking. Starts right here in John chapter 8, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, and, but early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. Now, in the, in the book of John, this is coming close to the crucifixion. And a crowd soon gathered, and he sat down, and he taught them. I want us to see the scene here for a minute. Jesus is teaching in the temple. He's doing something that, that really was reserved for Jewish rabbis, but he was recognized as that. That would have really gotten under the skin of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They would have looked at him and said, who gave you this authority? You, you have no right to preach here and teach here. But Jesus is. He's teaching there because this is his house. And then as he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery, and they put her in front of the crowd. 
Again, if you can imagine the scene, Jesus was teaching them and they interrupted him and basically throws this woman that they caught in adultery. Let me ask you a question. I know it's obvious and you probably heard this before when this, when this uh, story has been preached on, but how did they catch her? Not sure. Where's the guy? Right? And this is something I didn't know till studying for today. When they would do this type of thing with an adulterer, they would usually strip her down naked from the top to her waist. So she would have been shamed in front of the whole assembly in the temple. Think about that. It blows my mind. She would have never shown her face there again. Do you realize that? Do you realize for a Jew, God lived in the temple. If you were going to meet with him, you had to go there. What they were doing wasn't just shaming her, but they were ostracizing her from God forever. They, she couldn't go back there, not after this kind of treatment. And they were doing something that they were trying to trap Jesus. So not only did they disrespect him by interrupting his teaching, and then they throw this woman in front of him. Then it says, teacher, they said to him. This woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? How many of you use that version Bible app? Does anybody use that? I, I use it all the time. I use it for so many things. Uh, one of the things I do at times, too, is I like to hear the word read. I don't know if you've ever done that. I encourage you to do that. But I'll have to be honest with you. I've said this before. I don't like all the readers they have on there. So sometimes that determines the version I listen to because of the way that some of them read. And I know that's juvenile. It just is. But one of them, they put voices to some of the characters here. And this particular passage, as I was reading through it and then listening to it this week and kind of meditating before the Lord, it, it said it like this. Jesus, <laughs> this woman was caught in the act of adultery. I mean, they're just putting in his face. The law says to stoner, what do you say? Sometimes as we read the word, it seems so, it's, it's easy just to read it and read over it. And we skip out, we, we skip and we don't imagine or, or hear the tone and the voice. They are testing Jesus in a deep way here that for us today it's hard to see sometimes, but here's the test that they were putting in front of him. Clearly the law of Moses said that she should have been executed stoned to death right there and then. They, they really shouldn't have even brought her to Jesus. They should have already done that. That would have already been taken care of by them, but they lived under Roman, uh, uh, Roman uh, I almost said persecution. They, they lived under the government of Rome. And at the time here, Rome had withdrawn their ability to exact death sentences. That's why they had to go through the whole sham of trials and that kind of thing with Jesus because they themselves could not carry out a death sentence. That would have been violating Roman law for them. So what they were doing is putting Jesus between Jewish law, which he had to support, and Roman law. And maybe you don't think about this, but if Jesus were to have been aligned with Sadducees, Pharisees, or some of the other Jewish groups that existed at the time, the Essenes, the Zealots, he would have actually been most closely aligned with the Pharisees. Now, I know most of us, we read that and think, oh, no, they're hypocrites. Well, yes, but so are you. But, but those Pharisees were the ones who read the law, they followed it, they were actually the most pious of the group. So when they came to Jesus like this, they really thought they had him stuck because they knew he teached the truth, taught the truth, teach the truth. They knew that, right? They also knew he was gracious because they had heard his message of grace. They had seen it demonstrated. They had seen how he had done that before. So they thought, will he let her off the hook? 
because it's clear in the law of Moses, but we can't condemn her to death, so either way, we've got him. And look what Jesus does. They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him, but Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. Again, the insult. Jesus stops, and I'll tell you, years ago, back when I was in California as a youth pastor, uh, every year, this one school would bring uh, me as an evangelical minister, they would bring a, a Catholic priest and a rabbi, the three of us, and we would talk to all the seniors in each of their classes about, it was, it was a sociology class, and I was so impressed with the rabbi each time, because he would do something like this. Every time they would ask a really tough question, he would just stop, and he would look down, and he'd write, and the whole class is like waiting, waiting, waiting. And I talked to him about it one time. I said, now, is that just something you do? And he says, oh, yeah, that's a technique I do. It's called a pregnant pause. I just make them wait, 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 wait. Sometimes I'm trying to think of an answer, but usually I just want them to wait. Uh, mm, okay. Never thought of that before. And then I read this, and this week I just shot back and was reminded of him. Jesus was letting it sink in what they said. And then as he's drawing in the ground, we don't know what he was drawing but they keep badgering him. So what do you think? What are you going to do? What do you think? Which way should we go? Who's, who's right? Who's right? Are the Jews right? Are the Romans right? What are we going to do? They kept demanding an answer. All right, but let one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. There's been a lot of people, you know, wonder about what he was writing. Was he writing their names? Was he writing their sins? Was he writing out the ten? Oh, we don't know. We, don't, we, don't, we do not know. All we know is this. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. And again, think of the scene. The crowd didn't leave. They're there. They're the ones who were hearing him teach, and he was interrupted. They throw this woman half naked in front of him, tell him to cast judgment on her, and then Jesus says, well, let he who is without sin cast the first stone, then he writes on the ground, and then those accusers are the ones who leave. I'm sure everybody's like, what is going on? Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said, and Jesus says, neither do I go and sin no more. When you look at this, there's something important here to think about because it's both mercy and grace. Jesus really is the one who's perfect in the middle of all this. Think about what he does here. I, I love this quote by Walter Trobisch. It says, Christ accepts us how we are, but when he accepts us, we cannot remain as we are. Some people get confused about Christianity and they think it just, it, it, they almost look at it like, like a doting grandparent or a Santa Claus figure that if you come to Christ, yeah, he's going to check the list twice, but he'll still give you presents anyway. I mean, have any of you gotten coal ever? But the thing is, Jesus wasn't like that. Yes, he extended grace. But he also was a God of justice. I think if I was talking about this in our, we're doing the, the, um, the uh, J. Warner Wallace class, the forensic faith, and we were talking, uh, Cody filled in for me last week, and then as he was talking, we were talking about uh, going to, getting picked for a jury trial. And one time I went, I was in L.A., and I got called for the trial, and I ridden my, my Harley that day. So I had my jacket on, and I was carrying my helmet, and I had, I had long hair, and a, I didn't have a full beard, but I had a beard. And so I went in, and right away they said, well, we're going to dismiss juror, whatever my number was. And I just, I 
you're not supposed to talk, but I just like, why? And they said, well, we see on here that you're a minister and you're obviously a nonconformist. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and then they said, as a minister, we don't know which way you're going to go. Are you going to be lenient and give, they didn't say grace, but they said, overlook people's crimes and see the best in people. Or are you going to be a hardliner and letter of the law? We don't know which, so we're just going to dismiss you. Isn't that interesting? The world doesn't know what to do with real Christianity. So we live in a world that wants you to accept and overlook everything that they want to do. They want to make their own laws and their own rules about everything. And yet, we love them and show them the love and the grace that Jesus showed, and they just don't know what to do. Jesus constantly, constantly demonstrated extravagant grace. He did it all the time. Not only with this woman caught in adultery, but think about how he treated tax collectors who were looked down on by every segment of the society. Even the Roman soldiers, the occupying force, and he, he heals their children and cares for them. And the Samaritan woman who they, most Jews wouldn't even give the time of day, yet he cared for her. Even though he knew that she was a multiple adulterer, he still cared for her. And the shame-filled prostitute who washed his feet with her hair and he gave her grace. The ultimate example of Jesus and his grace, I think, comes in the form of the cross. Think about the cross. Think about what Jesus did. He came here to share with them the way to salvation. He came out of love. He came to those whom he created, and they didn't even recognize him. And those who were Jews themselves, and he explained to them over and over and over the love of God and the kingdom. And what did they do? They mocked him. They ridiculed him. Then he went through those sham trials and then he was beaten and mocked and a crown of thorns put on him and humiliated and stripped down and beaten and whipped and then carrying his own cross. Still blows me away to just think about the fact that he's being nailed to a tree he created by human beings he created who he came to love. Then as he's raised between heaven and earth and he's mocked by those religious rulers, maybe some of those who are in the crowd we just looked at today, subject of abject torment, and in the middle of all of that being mocked and said, oh, he saved others, but he can't save himself. And in the middle of all that, what does he say? Forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. Then as one of the thieves cries out, he forgives him as well. I don't know about you. I know I, I, all of us have had things that have happened to us that are wrong and bad. We've all had that. Obviously to varying degrees and some of you are still walking in things that are just horrible. I realize that. But in the middle of Jesus' worst day, he still extended grace. And really, he's the only one in all of history who could legit legitimately claim that he, was, that he was treated unfairly. That's grace. It's, it goes beyond all of that. And it's grace that saves us. So God saved you by his grace when you believed. You can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. God extends that grace to us. And it's one of the things that separates Christianity from every other faith, every other religion. 
Philip Yancey, he's got a wonderful book called What's So Amazing About Grace, and in there he talks about every religion offers a way to salvation and earn approval, but only Christianity, you have a God who loves us unconditionally and comes to us. There's a story told about Oxford professors sitting around and talking about uh, back when they were a lot largely Christian, but talking about uh, what makes Christianity so different. And they mentioned a lot of things. They mentioned the cross, and they mentioned Jesus, and they mentioned the Bible, and they mentioned the miracles and the hope, and the fact that it's grounded in history. And as C.S. Lewis walks in, he says, oh, that's easy. The thing that separates Christianity from everything else is grace. Grace. The idea that we serve a God who, who would shed his blood for us and take our place. Grace is the foundation of all of our faith. It's mentioned over a hundred times in the New Testament. So let me just ask you, if we are saved by grace, and that we're given grace, and we're expected to extend grace to others, why is it so hard to do? I mentioned it earlier, but I think one of the problems is I think we already think we do. We already think we're pretty graceful. I mean, we, we look at other people and see them being ungraceful, but we feel like we're pretty graceful. We look at other people and we see that they're judgmental, but we think we're not. It kind of reminds me, there's this passage in Jude, which, which reads this. It says, and you must show mercy to those whose faith is wa- wavering. Rescue others by snatching them from the flames of judgment. Show mercy still to still others, but do so with great caution, hating the sins that contaminate their lives. Does it remind you of anything? Like love the sinner and hate the sin? That's a high ideal. We don't do a very good job of that. It's a good thought, though. But I think we struggle here because it's difficult for us to unsee sin. Have you noticed that? You've heard that before, right? There's some things you just can't unsee. We can't forgive and forget. You know the old saying, to, to err is human, to forgive divine? I heard it said a different way this week, to err is human, to forgive seldom. I mean, how do you forgive and forget? How do you do that? How do you let people get a fresh start? I mean, the best way to predict future behavior is by past behavior. We all know that. That's how we live our lives. We expect things to be the same. And when when people act a certain way, we expect them to continue acting that way. Now, we've changed, but then we don't give them the room to change. It's crazy. I know I was talking with somebody recently, and they were talking about an issue they've had with somebody, and then the person says, wait a minute, that was four years ago. <laughs> could be yesterday, though, because it feels like it was yesterday. I don't know if you've seen this example before. I, I saw it years ago, and it, it just stuck me. This is a $20 bill. How many would like this? Would anybody like it? What if, what if I took it and just wrinkled it up like this? Would you still want it? What if I tossed it and then just ground it into the ground and it was all dirty and filthy and would you still want it? Why? It still has value. The value in this dollar bill has nothing to do with what it's been through. It's what is intrinsically in it. I don't know how many of us feel like we've been treated like that or done like that. Or maybe choices that we have made have wrinkled us and made us dirty. But the truth is that God still sees the value in us and it's intrinsic. It's who he made us to be. 
But let me ask you a serious question. Can you see people the way God sees them? I mean, past all the faults and the failures and the personality quirks and the things that annoy you and the sin they've committed and the things they've done and the choices they've made and what they've said. And, you know, so many of us, we try to establish our value by doing things. And sometimes, unfortunately, we think we can gain value by devaluing somebody else. And we do it so subtly. I know how it is because we all do it. You know, you pull up next to somebody in a truck and you look at them like, are they old enough to drive? You ever have that experience? And you look at them like, oh my goodness, that truck's brand new. What, what does that cost, 40, 50 grand? Well, and then you, what do you do? Oh, it's probably his dad's, right? I mean, whatever you have to do to make yourself feel better about it, right? We all do that. Well, mine's almost paid for, at least. I mean, I, you know, Right? You see somebody doing something, and you think, well, at least I look better doing it. Or I'm younger, or they're younger, right? You know, whatever. We, we do all these things, these little tricks we play to make ourselves feel better, but in doing so, it's, it's just a mind game we do because we feel better because we devalued somebody else. My car's cleaner, at least. Or a classic. <laughs> I love that one. Mine's a classic. <clears throat> you see a misbehaving kid in Walmart, and like, oh, my kid would never act like that. I think most of us said that way more when, before we had kids than after we've had kids. <laughs> C.S. Lewis said it this way, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Flannery O'Connor said, all human nature vigorously resists grace because grace changes us and the change is painful. I, I want to be honest about this. Forgiveness is hard. It's hard. It's hard to do. And it's not fair. Forgiveness isn't fair. I think one of the things that makes it so painful, as, as O'Connor said, is, is that it, in forgiving, you give up your justification to not be gracious. When you forgive, it changes things. There's a story told about Clara Barton. She's a founder of the Red Cross. She was talking with a friend, and as she was talking with a friend, a mutual acquaintance came up. And this particular person who had come up in their conversation was somebody who had been particularly cruel to Clara repeatedly in her life. And the friend said, do, do you remember when she, and Clara cut her off, and she said, no, I distinctly remember forgetting that. Forgiveness is a choice. It's not easy. It's not fair. But it is a choice. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but it frees you in a way that you can't even imagine. I want to be clear about this, though. It's not condoning somebody's behavior in any way. It's not pardoning them. It's not even means you're going to be friends. It doesn't mean any of those things. But it does take action. And that's the difference between, I, th I don't think you can forgive without grace, because grace is the active part. It's the thing you choose to do. Jesus, somehow, he found that balance between the love and truth. And I know that some of you, as we've been talking here today, and maybe in the weeks past, you've, you've been screaming inside, and I know how this goes, because I do it too. 
And you're saying to yourself, or maybe to me, but you're just screaming, maybe to God. You, you don't know what they did. And you don't know what they said. And you don't know how, how they did it, the arrogance or the attitude. And you just don't know. And they're still doing it. And they're still getting away with it. And maybe you're saying, this grace you're talking about is too easy. And what you mean is it's hard. I get it. I know. I understand. Think about Jesus turning over the temple money changers. We, we don't see him actively angry in Scripture very often. What you see is a, is, a, is a balance between love and truth. So with a woman caught in adultery, he said, go and sin no more. He didn't condone her sin. He didn't let her off. He forgave her sin and said, stop sinning. Stop that lifestyle choice that you're making right there. That's what he did. And in the money changer story, again, it's, it's, a, it's a very sad story. And, and maybe you don't realize this, but the way that the Jewish Passover worked is it was a requirement for you to go. And in the Jewish religion of the time, if you didn't go once a year to the temple, that was one of the reasons you could kept out, be kept out of paradise. They had to go. So you had to go and you had to make that trip from wherever you lived. And when you got there, think about how they traveled. You, not everybody had the means to be able to take the sacrifice with you, so you had to buy it there. And here's something that I learned just recently, but, but there was a certain silver coin that the Jews had minted just for them. It was a temple tax coin. So they didn't trade with the, the Romans for this coin, but you, what you would have to do is to trade to get that coin. And that special coin is the only thing you could pay your temple tax with. So people had to buy it there. Now, they had centers all over Israel where you could buy that coin, but that was something that was unique. So when it says that Jesus walked in and he saw money changers, what they were doing was making a profit over something they had to do to get to God. Can you see why it would make Jesus angry? You are putting something in between me and God? You are charging people to have their sins forgiven and to come near me? But we do the same thing. We charge people, it's just we don't, of course, have coins and we don't do that, but we charge them in our heart and mind and say, you can't be near to God. I don't forgive you. I don't let you get close to God because you did this or this or this. And I won't let you, in my mind at least, be close to him because of these things. So when you see Jesus, the story where he makes a whip and he turns the tables over and he does, oh, here's something else that just might get you, maybe not, but you know where they were doing it? was in the court of the Gentiles and the women. Maybe you don't realize this, but you know, only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies. Next was the holy place. And then there was the area where the males, the Jewish males could worship, but all the women and the Gentiles, the non-Jews, had to be on the outside. That's where they were doing it. They were taking up the space that was actually meant for the Gentiles and the women to come near. It's wrong on so many levels. But it doesn't end there. Think about how Jesus corrected Martha when she was upset with Mary. And think about how Jesus corrected Peter over and over and over. We've been given, uh, Jesus gave us this way to correct issues between one another. If another believer sins against you, go privately, point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back. But if you're unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. It doesn't say to gossip with them, right? Tell everybody ahead of time. 
And then if the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. And if he, he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a tax collector. I see some things in there that we need, and that is it's supposed to be one-on-one. We're supposed to do it privately. And then the goal is supposed to be restoration, not being right, not, not, not shaming someone else, not, not humiliating or correcting. It's supposed to be relationship. I look at these scriptures, and there's so many we could share, but you ask, you might ask, how important is forgiveness to God? How important are these relationships? How is it important for you to extend grace? We, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, but let's look at it again. But if I say to you, if you're even angry with someone, this is Sermon on the Mount, you are subject to judgment. That's a high bar. Even angry, subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you're in danger of being brought before the court. And if you cause, curse someone, you're in danger of the fires of hell. Followed right on that statement, Jesus says, so if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar, go and be reconciled to that person, then come and offer your sacrifice to God. He puts those relationships before sacrificing. And the bar he set was even if you're angry or calling somebody an idiot or cursing them. It doesn't even end there. I know all of us, all of us could quote at, you know, the Lord's Prayer, right? The disciples' prayer, the Our Father. How does it go? Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Okay, and? And let's just stop right here. Forgive our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against. This is a New Living Translation, but look at it in the Amplified. And forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors, letting go of both the wrong and the resentment. I literally laughed out loud when I read that. I laughed out loud. I, there's a lot of times where I'll go to the Amplified and just, just to see the, or an expanded translation or something. And when I read that, I laughed out loud. Just the idea that this would be the, what is meaning here is letting go of the wrong and the resentment. You know why? Why did he have to describe it that way? Because we need a definition because we always look for a loophole. It's like Peter when he said, how much do I have to forgive? Seven times good? And Jesus said, no, Peter, seven times 70. Forgive every time, all the time. Keep forgiving Letting go of the wrong and the resentment. <laughs> How do you do this? How do you love like Jesus? How do you do it? I'm going to call you to a response here in a minute. It's kind of a trick question. How do you do it? You know why? Because you don't do it. You don't do it. He does it. You do choose. You choose. But he's the one who does it in you, through you. He works in you to do what you can't do on your own. There are things done to each of us every day that are far beyond our forgiving. But we serve a God who forgiveness and love is who he is. And he wants us to be the same. And if you struggle with that or you find in your life there's things that are not working, then what you need to do is get more of him. It's by his grace that we can extend grace. I'm going to ask you to shut your eyes for a minute. I just want to read a couple things to you. With your eyes closed for a second, are you struggling with loving like this? As I've been talking about it, are you saying to yourself, this is impossible, I can't do this? My challenge to you then 
is to get more of Jesus. Are you tr- struggling with the idea of extending grace, this much grace? If that is true, then get more of Jesus. If you're struggling with this kind of forgiveness, and maybe as I've talked, there's somebody who you've struggled to forgive, get more of Jesus. With your eyes still closed, I'm going to ask you to keep your eyes closed for a minute here, but I don't know if there's somebody on your mind when I've talked about forgiving, or maybe think of it like this, someone who negatively changed the direction of your life. You think of anybody like that? Does that bother you? How do you do it? You get more of Jesus. With your eyes still closed, you may not realize, but today's the day of Pentecost. It's 50 days after the Passover. It's today. This is the day the 120 were up in the upper room and they were filled with the Holy Spirit for the first time. The Holy Spirit, one of his jobs is to work in us and change us into the image of Jesus. Maybe you're struggling and you need him in you. Maybe you've never been filled with the Holy Spirit and you would like that today. We'll pray for you for that today. Maybe you've been struggling with one of these things and you just can't seem to get beyond and you'd like one of us to pray with you. Maybe for you, you've kind of closed your, your heart off to love at all. I want to read to you just a, a small paragraph from C.S. Lewis's book, The Four Loves. He wrote this, oh my goodness, 50 years ago. But listen to this. He says, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to be sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries and avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safely in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from the dangers of love is hell. Maybe you've cut off all love because you've been hurt. I'm here to tell you today, we serve a God who wants to heal your heart. For some of you, you, you can't actually forgive till your heart is healed. And that's what you need today. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me if you would. And those of you who are part of our prayer team or pastor's wives or pastor's Board, board spouses, if you would come forward and be ready to pray with some people. You may be also standing here today and you're thinking, I don't even have Jesus at all. You keep saying, get more of Jesus. I don't have him at all. Well, guess what? We can take care of that today too. If you'd like prayer for any one of those things or anything else, we are happy to pray with you here today. I just want to invite you to come for some prayer.